Seated. I think uh, anybody reading that text from our gospel today um, would have to admit that it was not a good day for the twelve. Uh, in fact, it was a very bad day for those 12. Uh, we are in Mark chapter 9, if you want to follow along in the text. It's, again, it's one of these challenging texts. Uh, Mark has told us, in essence, that Jesus has turned that proverbial corner, uh, and he's heading back now towards Jerusalem. He's been up in Syria in, or in Tyre and Sidon. He has come down through the Decapolis, which is on the east side of the Jordan. He's now passing through uh, Galilee, back into the north of Israel. Uh, and he, Mark says this, And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. The reason he went to Tyre and Sidon was to take his disciples away, those who had finally come to confess him as the Christ of Israel. Peter's confession in chapter 8. He takes them away to teach, to be formed, to be discipled. And he didn't want anybody to interfere with it. He knows that as he begins to go towards Jerusalem, he'll be caught up in the crowds of Passover but he is intent on getting something across to his disciples. And again, Mark tells us what he wanted to get across. Uh, he, this is his teaching. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Oh, and by the way, when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. That's it. That's the intensive training, the intensive teaching that Jesus was trying to impart to his disciples, the twelve being among the wider group of disciples. This is the second time Mark tells us he has told them this. There is a third time yet to come. This was the content of his teaching. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up and killed. And oh, by the way, three days later, I will rise. Bold, bald teaching utterly concise. Anybody can remember it, right? And utterly incomprehensible. We're not surprised when Mark goes on to say, and the disciples did not understand the saying, couldn't even begin to get what he was trying to say. How could these things And I have a great deal of sympathy for them. I really do. Uh, for 2,000 years later, we are still asking the same question. How can this be? <laughs> right? How can this life, 
which ends in this death, be vindicated by the resurrection and give birth to that which is new? How can this life and this death truly help the Creator to right what is wrong within His creation? How can this life and this death overcome death, judge and eradicate sin, and destroy the power of evil without destroying those who are complicit with and corrupted by that evil? How do you answer that question? 2,000 years later, with the aid of the entire New Testament, we still struggle to put it together. They simply did not understand. But Mark says they not only didn't understand the saying, they were afraid to ask. That's stunning. And again, unfortunately, not surprising. Here now we see that they're adding to their problem, not they're adding to their lack of understanding, their fear of understanding. They don't want to understand this stuff. They don't want to have to grapple with it. They don't want to ask him. They are afraid to ask for clarification. They simply want it to go away, to slip off their back like water on a duck. <laughs> afraid to ask. But Jesus refuses to allow them to do that. Uh, there is both challenge and grace in that. Uh, Mark again says uh, they arrive back at their home base in Capernaum, uh, and Jesus asked them a provocative question. What were you discussing on the road? Uh, it's provocative and it sounds very simple, uh, but again, it exposes the twelve exposes them in their fallenness. Mark says, they kept silent. Uh, silence has a recurring theme in this story. And this is now a guilty silence uh, because he goes on to say, for on the way, they argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, here is the juxtaposition, and it's really quite wonderful and absolutely devastating at the same time, right? Uh, adding now to their fearful understanding about what Jesus was about leads inevitably to angry competition about what we are all about. They go hand in hand like white on rice refuse to deal with what Jesus is about, we are left to deal with what we are about. And what we are about is ugly competition. Who among us is the greatest? 
and that's the dilemma. We don't want to deal with his stuff because we are absolutely focused on our stuff. But Jesus refuses to allow them to do that, refuses to leave them in their silence. He uh, does something. Mark says he sat down. This is the position of authority. The teacher sits when he wants to teach. And he sat down and he called the 12 to him. He ordered them to come. In the midst of the rest of the disciples, the 12 had to be up front because these were the ones who were arguing among themselves. Called the 12 to him and he said to them, if anyone would be first, and you all want to be first, we all desire to be first. <clears throat> but if you, anyone, would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he goes on to illustrate that with a child. But I just want to stick with his statement. Do we hear what he's saying? I think it's this. If this is true, If this life ending in this death is the way that the Creator Himself intervenes decisively in and for His creation, giving birth to His new creation, judging that which is wrong with the old creation in such a way that He can redeem those who have been complicit with the evil in it, if this is true, then everything changes. Everything is flipped on its head. If this is true, then the greatest must be the servant of all and to serve all. Because that is the way this new world is birthed. If this is true, then you and I simply must deal with it. Wow. As I say, not a good day for the 12, right? Sort of a smacky up against the side of the head kind of day. And all we're left with is deal with it. Well, I found that a bad day for the disciples uh, makes for a bad text for a preacher. I found myself asking, what do I do with this? <laughs> right? What do we do with this? Except simply listen to it. How do we even begin to think about dealing with this? Breaking our own silence about the fears that we might have in doing so. Well, uh, Mark does not help us with that question, so I found myself gravitating to a second text, and I want you to turn to James. Chapter 3 of James, in the back of the New Testament there. I discovered that uh, while our text does not include what James will give us instruction, that comes next week, he does give us something to think about, to begin to deal with our fears of asking. 
And I just want to highlight that. We can't deal in detail with it. It begins really before our text this morning in chapter 3, verse 13. But let me just again uh, put this in context. James is writing to a community that has been birthed into this new creation. It has received that word of gospel that has been implanted within them. They are um, amongst those who are there, right? But they are struggling to deal with the reality on the ground. They are riffed with uh, divisions. Uh, They have people competing with one another, as we'll find. They're just like any other church around, right? Even this one. But James speaks to them, and he says, he asks two big questions. The first is this in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? He starts the chapter by saying, let not many become teachers, because obviously a lot of them were wanting to become teachers, rabbis in their Jewish context, wanting to be seen as somebody who is wise and the greatest among them. We're back to that first question of the disciples, who is the greatest? And again, James is saying, I think, in essence, we all desire to be great, to flourish, to be the best we can be, and we might as well be great in being wise. Right? You don't want to be great in strength or great in, in knowledge necessarily, but wisdom is the prize. Who is great? Who is wise and understanding among you? Who understands the truth about reality and how to live in accordance with it? That's the question. He goes on to say, all right, show me by your your life. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You guys are vying for greatness. Show me your life. Show me why you are the greatest. But then he goes on to say, but, raises the question, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. We're back to the 12 walking to Capernaum. Who is the greatest? They are rife with bitter jealousies and selfish ambitions. And guess what? That's the reality of the fallen human hearts. We are rife with bitter jealousies. We are rife with selfish ambition. And it comes even into the way we live out our Christian life. There's the horror of the thing. We are not so different from these in that James is writing to him. We're not different from the 12 walking to Capernaum. James goes on in this paragraph to say, The reality is there are only two sources of wisdom available to us. There's the wisdom that comes from above, that comes through the revelation of the Creator into His creation, the revelation that is centered on this life, this death, and this resurrection. There is that revelation that comes from above, the wisdom which is pure, which is peaceable, which is wonderful. And He talks a great deal about that. 
He says, the other kind of wisdom, he says, is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There is a wisdom that comes from this world. Uh, we, there's a variety of wisdoms that come from this world, a variety of wisdoms that have been put into moral traditions over time and over millennium. James is saying, in essence, is saying, look, you've got to choose. Each and every one of us does act out of a wisdom. But is it the wisdom from the earth, from below, or is it a wisdom truly from above? That's the question. Right? We assume it's above. But what if we're wrong in that assumption? So how do you know which wisdom you're acting on? How do you know? James asks a second question, uh, and I find it a diagnostic question. And it says this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Wow. Do you know the answer to that question? What causes quarrels that you are involved in? What causes fights that you are involved in? Do you know the core reasons for why you get triggered like that? Now he goes on, it's a wonderful story, and I'm not gonna be able to unpack it. He says again, um, the reason, of course, is, is that our passions, he says, are at war within us. Very powerful kind of image. Our passions are at war within us. Uh, he says our desires are attached to the wrong things, right? And all of us have these desires, and they all have to be attached to some object, but they are attached to the wrong objects so often. He says, so much so that even when we pray, when we ask for things, we don't get them because we're asking for the wrong stuff. And then he ends this diatribe with the prophetic judgment. Oh, you adulterous people. He's addressing his church. And he goes like the prophets of old, you are adulterous people. And they're adulterous because they are unfaithful. And again, as you read through the scriptures, uh, idolatry and adultery are always united. Unfaithfulness to God always shows up in attachment to something other than and lesser than God. We have to worship something. And if we do not worship the true God, we will find ourselves worshiping something other than, lesser than, idolatrous things of God. And so James asked the question, do you know what you are worshiping? <laughs> Truly, do you know? Do you know what triggers you? Do you know what causes these quarrels, which causes these fights? Do you understand how your passions are at war within you? 
do you know what your desires are truly attached to? Can you name your idols? Do you know? Let me ask you another question. Do you want to know? Or are we afraid to ask? Come back to the gospel. The 12 did not want to know. They were fearful of what they would hear, fearful of what they would be told, fearful of what they would be shown. But the reality is, because they could not ask, they could not act in a way that made for life. That's where it begins. Not only to admit that we do not always know, but that we are terrified to know. We hide that knowledge even from ourselves, and it destroys us from within. That's what James is saying. So the question comes, not do you know, but do you want to know? Do you want to know what causes those quarrels? What triggers you in that way? Do you want to know how your passions are at war and how they might be made peaceful? Do you want to know where your desires are truly focused? Do you want to know your idols? If we are to act in a way that leads into life, we need to begin with that question. Show me where I am trapped in fear. Show me where I am trapped in unfaithfulness, in idolatry. That's the beginning of dealing with this new reality. Do we have the courage to ask? Do we trust in his grace? He gives more grace to those who humble themselves before him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.